Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. David Solomon. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Connecticut. David, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. How are you doing? My pleasure. Very well. Thank you for the invite back again. So nice of you to help us out with some good information. I'm excited to talk about antibiotics today. Yeah, this is a topic that I think I gravitated towards more recently, just noting that things already were starting to change since I was a dental student and even in residency. So just keeping up to date with those things, you know, made me realize that this is an ever-changing thing. It's pretty dynamic. And I think it's going to change a lot in our careers, you know, depending on where you are in your career. So try to put this in the curriculum for the residents because, you know, I I don't, it definitely shouldn't be one of those things where you you kind of set it and forget it, what you learn in in dental school, because there's certainly, especially in, in our field where we're dealing with potentially serious, you know, high consequence infections. And then there's also the kind of the special circumstances that hopefully we'll talk about such as, you know, neck fash or osteomyelitis or, you know, sialadenitis and things like that, which are a little bit unique. So. Yep. Cool. Well, can you start us off by just kind of talking about some of the principles of antibiotic therapy? Yeah. So I think, you know, as, as you and I, focused in residency, we learned, I think this really well from, from Peterson's, which really has those eight principles of management of infections. And so this topic to me, we're kind of focusing on the sixth and seventh, which is choose your antibiotic appropriately and administer your antibiotic appropriately. So the, the, the eight steps are are involving everything from determining the severity and the, the host to the setting of care, the surgical and medical treatment. So, but focusing on antibiotics, that's kind of the interest of this uh, conversation. And there's a lot to unpack there. You know, I think you and I know that we, the most important fact is really treating the source. And a lot of times antibiotics in a mild infection aren't even really necessary. And that's a whole nother topic. And I think another big thing you know, to talk to our specialty about and all other physicians. Um, and I think you've talked about this on, on the podcast before. You've had other other guests who've discussed antibiotic resistance, which I think is a huge problem. But but in thinking about what we use and when we use it, we have to think about, are we treating an infection? A, because sometimes when, and we hopefully we'll talk about prophylaxis, you know, the the duration of antibiotics for that as well using the narrowest spectrum, 
and combinations when that's appropriate and when it's not. And then, you know, back to the duration is minimizing the duration as appropriate. So back to prophylaxis, if we're prophylaxing, what what does that mean? Does that mean just one dose, three doses, how long versus a full course and how long for that? And that depends on the, the nature of the infection. And so there's a lot there that I think sometimes we overlook the details. And, you know, I've seen a lot of residents just throw seven to 10 days at everything, no matter what it is. And when you really look at the literature, you realize that that's overkill a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think one, you know, before we really jump into details, one thing that I, I feel like we learn probably in dental school, maybe medical school, it as well would be that adage of, oh, you always must finish a course of antibiotics, right? That's kind of something we're taught early on, I think. Yeah, for sure. And and that's not untrue, but I guess my point that I want to make here is that it doesn't always have to be a, a full course. What does a course mean? And well, a course could be one day or one dose, and that's actually appropriate. So I think we could talk about this later, but you know, I recall even in residency for an orthognathic, everyone would leave the hospital with a week of antibiotics, but is that really necessary? And so, you know, especially most of the time it's junior residents who are just putting that in. So they're just putting it in reflexively. So I I think it's something we should talk to our residents about and and really think about what we're doing. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. Anything else on the principles of it? Well, I mean, Obviously, following the the most up-to-date evidence-based recommendations when available, a lot of things we do are empiric, but, you know, we could talk a little bit too maybe about cultures and sensitivities and when that's appropriate and when that happens and when it doesn't. You know, there's not guidelines to everything we do, especially when it comes to prophylaxis, and that's something, you know, we can talk about, but, and it's different for different surgeries, so a third molar removal, a dental implant, an orthognathic, a trauma, a total joint. I mean, they're all different. They're very different. And, you know, the risks and benefits of antibiotic prophylaxis is different. But yeah, I mean, as far as, I mean, I think those are all principles that we need to think about. We need to be aware of of even when they're necessary at all. So I don't know. I think those are the important things. And Maybe I didn't articulate it before, but what I mean about completing a course of antibiotics, I used to think when I was a dental student that if you took a day or two or whatever of of an antibiotic, that that was actually going to potentially breed resistance. And that was the old adage of you need to take it for the full course. But that's not really true. It's only true if you're treating an active infection that really requires that length of time. So for example, osteomyelitis, yes, you need long-term antibiotics, but that's a unique situation. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I'm kind of bouncing around. I think, you know, hopefully I mentioned and touched on most of the principles, you know, and 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 one of those is, well, do you need it? So what is the indication for an antimicrobial, it's typically if a patient has more than just localized 
signs and symptoms. So a fever or regional lymphadenopathy, perforation of bones spread to surrounding soft tissue, you know, obviously those systemic findings. And then, but, you know, caveats are severely immunocompromised patients. They're certainly at particular risk. So, you know, not only do do they likely much more likely require antibiotics, but a broader spectrum as well, because they're not able to mount the immune response to even for kind of the normal flora, for example. Yeah. A good point. Uh, yeah. I mean, we throw antibiotics at so much these days when there isn't symptoms or just local symptoms. Um, I think in a- Antibiotic resistance scares me a lot. I think it should scare all of us because we take it for granted. And and some of the stuff we can talk about, you know, we know that so for odontogenic infections, if, you know, for the vast majority, they're polymicrobial. And if one or several of those bacteria that we don't think too much about, you throw amoxicillin at it, eventually that's not enough there's high rates of of resistance to a lot of of the antibiotics that we use and that's why things are are changing and have changed so i think maybe let's just i'll mention a couple of things that are basic and then we can build on that so if if we're talking about a regular run of the mill odontogenic infection we know it's polymicrobial and they're interdependent on one another a lot of times these different bacteria so usually strep is involved probably the most common is a strep viridens group. And then often there is some, well, staph can be relatively common. A lot of times that's just a contributor and that's usually like coagulase negative staph. So it's like a skin flora. And then, you know, those are kind of the aerobic players most of the time, much more common strep, but then we have the anaerobic players, which are the vast majority of that overall infection so they predominate usually three or four times. And those are broken down into, well, what used to be called peptostreptococcus, but that actually, I think that name has changed. It's now parvimonas, if I'm saying that correctly. And then there's also, of course, Prevotella, Porphyromonas, Fusobacterium. That old term, there's a term bacteroides, that's an old term that's been, I think, speciated out to those other Prevotella, Porphyromonas, Fusobacterium. So anyway, all of those are kind of what you learned as classic things, but a lot of our common antibiotics are showing 20, 30, even 40% resistance to some of those, one or several of those. And then you have the, the virulent organisms that are Staph aureus, strep pneumonia, other types of strep like strep pyogens, Eichenella, Klebsiella. So those are all the other ones that we sometimes see, especially obviously things are speciated. And those are not part of, well, some of those might not be part of the normal flora like Klebsiella or Pseudomonas. And so just knowing you know, I think it's really important to just know know all of these types of bacteria and what's common, what's not, what's and what covers what. And that, that takes a long time, I think, to really get down. Why do you think it is important to know these? Well, because number one, I mean, if you're dealing with, well, two reasons. If you're dealing with infections that 
on a regular basis and a patient does not, let's say it's an outpatient infection, something that you deal with in the office, and that patient does not improve or worsens, then you need to know, A, what could it be? What could be causing that? What to do about it? What to hit it with? Antibiotic-wise, I mean. And if you do culture this and you get sensitivities, especially if this is either abnormal or it's resistant to initial treatment, then you, A, you have to know what antibiotic of choice to use. And I think it's just helpful to really break down, you know, what's normal and what's abnormal flora, and then also helps you think about their, the patient's host defenses against those. Yeah, that's a good point. I know too, there's, and this is a different probably topic, but there's more research coming out, a lot more coming out and books being written on the microbiome and what is kind of what certain, you know, oral flora are healthy in someone, what's not. And that in itself can paint a picture of the health of the person and their diet and immune response and all that stuff. A lot of interesting stuff going on with that. Certainly. And, and I mean, I'm not a big proponent of antibiotics. I try to use them as sparingly as possible because, you know, every time you use one, you are annihilating some portion of that patient's flora they're in their gut and things like that, that, you know, are actually quite helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this article at least 10 years ago, you know, Flynn is a big, a big player in this space in our specialty. And it's, it's interesting that there's a, the true flora of oral facial odontogenic infections are way more than we even realize. And apparently at that, at least at that time, 69% were unculturable. So there's, we're only scratching the surface on the amount of bacteria that we even identify. And a lot of times, you know, in the hospital, susceptibilities aren't even performed. And, and that's fine, I guess, because most of the time it's empiric and it works. And maybe, maybe the surgery was the most important point anyway. But I mean, I've had patients where I had one patient, she was a young, healthy patient third molars, everything was routine. Two days later, she came back, major infection. I mean, it was it was probably the most frightened I've been with a patient of mine. So we, you know, admitted her, took her immediately to the OR, IND. Didn't, you know, this literally was two days later. It was like nothing I had ever seen. Because, you know, that's, that's pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was rapidly progressing. I mean, it was one of those where you're marking her skin. And I was thinking, could this be neck fash? Because it looked that way, but she was young and healthy. And anyway, long story short, I think, I'm trying to think of the timeline, but we drained her, let's say on a Thursday afternoon. By Friday evening, she was still worsening as far as the spread. Of what you could, you know, with the marker on the cellulitis down the neck, it was it was below the the clavicle at that point. So it was it was frightening, and and obviously at that point we had ID on board, and she was on broad spectrum. She was, I believe, she was on. I don't know. She was probably on vancomycin at that time, and then they added, and and nothing nothing speciated at that point or anything, and they added, Clinda, and it. 
and they 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 kind of i remember well they the fellow was was like well this is the only other thing we can think of clinda has activity against you know just run-of-the-mill strep pyogens which has this kind of this rap can have this rapid rapid cellulitic spread and it was and they said it, it it'll take about 12 hours to to work and it was it was almost exactly 12 hours and it started to recede it was it was quite impressive and this is after a major drainage source control everything wow so i guess my point in saying that is without appropriate antibiotics down the road we could be in a bad situation yeah and clinda is one of the ones that has one of the most prominent resistance to most of our run-of-the-mill infections yeah. so that's that's just actually kind of a bad example for for what we could talk about but i mean you're aware i'm i'm sure now that clindamycin is not even recommended as a dental prophylaxis anymore hmm. interesting which i feel like no one made a big deal out of but that was just standard forever yeah if, totally if you, if you look at the guidelines now clinda's out what took its place and nothing <laughs> <laughs> it's just out yeah no it, it, it's it's basically if you're allergic to penicillin or amoxicillin they you know it's recommended to to do cefazolin or ceftriaxone mm -hmm. and that would obviously if you had a known serious reaction to penicillins that could be a cross-reactive then it's azithromycin or clarithromycin or doxycycline but those are only oral so I, it's just funny because that so you know how that's broken down into four categories it's like you take you take amoxicillin or or ampicillin sorry you take amoxicillin if it's oral or ampicillin if it's not oral and then it used to be clinda so clinda had oral and iv now Clinda's out, so you can either take Ansef or you know Keflex. Well, actually, I think Keflex would be out. You would just take amoxicillin anyway. Then you have cephalexin, azithromycin, clarithromycin, or doxycycline. Those are your oral choices if you're allergic. But if you're allergic and you can't take IV, the only choice that they that is in the guideline is cefazolin or ceftriaxone. So I don't know. Okay. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to make your own judgment, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's but it's not, but the guidelines don't actually have it in them. Interesting. Do you know the reasoning behind it? Was it resistance I, I, or C diff or what? So the the research that I've done on up to date about that was actually I can read it to you if you like. I don't have it memorized, but I have it up here because you know I knew we would talk about this, and and I, I don't know how well known that is but anyway clindamycin is no longer recommended as an alternative antibiotic for patients undergoing dental procedures given more frequent and severe adverse reactions associated with this drug compared to other antibiotic agents in one study of adverse reactions to antibiotics used as endocarditis prophylaxis between 2004 and 2014 the rate of adverse drug reactions to amoxicillin was zero fatal and 23 non-fatal Per million prescriptions for clindamycin the rate was 13 fatal and 149 non-fatal per million prescriptions so i would have thought it was more resistance based but apparently 
at least one study was was focused on the adverse reactions. But one of the things that you know we could talk about is the resistance to clindamycin, which mm-hmm. is it's a, it's a big big issue as well. Adverse so, reactions. We're talking about side effects. Just yeah, you know, probably most common for that. You know, C diff. Yeah. Is, a, think, is an allergic reaction an adverse reaction? I guess. I think they're separate types of reactions. Te- okay. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that's just a a, a big shift i think so for example i don't know if do you do you prophylax patients for dental implants for example i don't you don't do you give them post-op usually yeah depending on the patient i used to prophylax people you know for example if i was going to do a sedation Mm -hmm. and i and it was a procedure that i was going to use prophylaxis i would do iv you know, so ampicillin or clindamycin, but now clindamycin is technically out. It's a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. At least in the office setting. So anyway, I use azithromycin as my alternative in the office now. For healthy patients, for a lot of healthy patients with um, not just an implant, no bone graft, I frequently don't even prescribe them. And it's mm-hmm. rare I have any issues, but... Uh, I know that's a, a lot of varying opinions, and the the r- routine thing that most do is prescribing for any implant, any bone graft. You know, yeah, maybe maybe we could talk about that. I mean, just prophylactic antibiotics for what we do for our our specialty, because okay. you know what? Why do we prophylax? It's to prevent a surgical infection, and you have to think about the wound classification. So, you know, you have clean, clean, contaminated, contaminated, and dirty. So none of our oral procedures are clean, right? All technically clean, contaminated, or or worse. So an infection rate of a clean, contaminated surgery without antibiotics is relatively high, you know, roughly 10%. So you would think, that would warrant prophylaxis. So, and that would be for any intraoral procedure, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But we don't do that, and it, things work out much better than 10%. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of data that actually supports antibiotic prophylaxis for third molar removal. Dental implants, I think, is more definitive. And then you get into bone grafts and orthognathics and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of data about third molars, and I think you could go either way. Dental implants, I think there, there's certainly a, you know meta-analysis that have showed statistically significant implant survival with, with a pre-op dose. But yet post-op, see, post-operatively is a different story. Post-op has, has unclear benefit. And of course, you know, there's variables in these studies was chlorhexidine used and things like that but yeah i i give every patient every single patient we do a any procedure on does a double rinse with and actually this started from covid was that they do a double rinse of paradex and then the uh that peroxide rinse i forget the name is it peroxyl maybe peroxyl okay and 
anyway, I don't see why that would hurt. So yeah. So dental implants, bone grafts, preoperative antibiotics, not great evidence on that. Orthognathics, that probably has the best evidence for pre and post-op. Probably out of all of the things we do, aside from a joint replacement, orthognathics would be the one to give post-op antibiotics. But then the question is how long? So really the, the evidence is only two days post-op has shown benefit. Anything beyond that has not, hmm. which is kind of surprising given, you know, especially a, a Lafort in the sinus and, and everything. But, you know, the, the study is showing one day, two days, three days, five days, there's no benefit to anything beyond two days. And then trauma, dependent, there's, you know, trauma is a wide range of trauma, but unless it's, you know, a compound mandible fracture, that is, there is evidence to support antibiotic prophylaxis for that. But most other trauma, not really. And then I think TMJ replacement is the more obvious and easy one, because that's basically following the orthopedic literature for joint replacement. So it's recommended, obviously, prophylaxis as well as seven to 10 day post-op course. Got it. Okay. So, you know, I, I think what we do in the office is often quite different than, than the hospital, but I think we have to use literature and evidence-based practice for, for that because, you know, we get away from, you know, what, what are the other surgical specialties doing? And I think the field of dentistry is just heavy handed in antibiotics and, and, you know, how, how many patients do you see who come to you who need a tooth removed and they have no infection, they just have pain and they're on antibiotics from their dentist? Oh, tons. Yeah. And then that goes back to that question about, oh, should they stay on it and finish that course? If they have no sign of infection and they have no real immunocompromised state, then no, why should they? I mean, they shouldn't even be on it in the first place. Mm -hmm. But so I don't know, this is just a pet peeve of mine. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we know amoxicillin is our workhorse, but there's increasing resistance to the strep viridens group up to 40%. So that's a big problem. Yeah. And again, the caveat to this is you don't know, A, this is all empiric for most of what we're doing, and B, this depends on the, the region. This is very regionally dependent. And there's there you can look that up in your particular community in your area, like what the resistance levels are to particular bacteria with particular antibiotics. And that's something that maybe people should should do on some sort of regular basis. Yeah, so if you step point. you know, you step it up from amoxicillin to augmentin or unison you're getting better coverage. It's really the same as amoxicillin. Plus you're getting some staff coverage. You're getting increased anaerobic gram negative rods covers Klebsiella, but there's increasing resistance to some of the other anaerobes that were commonly covered like Prevotella and Fusobacterium. And then of course you have to know too, what, what things don't cover, you know, that's a whole nother ball game. So if you're dealing with MRSA or you think you're dealing with MRSA, what antibiotics to, to use. So I don't know, we can, you could go through all of these different antibiotics, but you know, some of them, as you increase in 
like cephalosporins, as you increase in generations, typically one would say the the coverage improves in gram negatives, but worsens in gram positives. So as you step it up in a certain class of antibiotics, you might get better coverage in certain categories, but worsened coverage in others. They don't. So I, I think a, a good pearl for you know students and residents is just because it's a quote bigger gun or broader spectrum doesn't mean sometimes you're losing coverage in certain certain places. You know, so that's just obviously important to know what you're giving up when you go for a bigger, quote unquote, bigger antibiotic. I think another good antibiotic to think about nowadays too is is Ceftin. So mm-hmm. Ceftin is a second generation cephalosporin and it has the best anaerobic coverage of cephalosporins and it's the only PO cephalosporin really. Oh, sorry. It's, it's the, it's the only PO cephalosporin in that generation that has good anaerobic coverage. It's not the only PO cephalosporin, but if you want, so if you need an alternative and to a penallergic or, you know, mild penicillin allergy, it's a potential good choice or if there's known resistance to something. So that's Ceftin. And then of course, you know, we can talk about combination therapies as well. So adding things together, like commonly adding flagell with, with something, because we know flagell just covers anaerobes. So if you, if you add something that covers, you know, gram positive aerobes, so maybe ANSEF. Mm-hmm. Plus flagell. So these are all that that's why it's important to know what what coverages are because then you can start making good combinations when when necessary. What are some of the frequent combinations you use and, and their various indications? So yeah, I mean I think you, so penicillin and flagell is a good combination. But I think there's not a lot of reason to do that because usually you're you're reaching outside of the penicillin family when you need to then you can't use a penicillin right so actually i think one that's pretty pretty well at least becoming more known is levaquin clinda and that's actually recommended now as one of the one of the treatments for penicillin allergic, more severe head and neck infection, you know, one that's admitted. Okay. Clinda so and levofloxacin is a, is a decent combination or one we're using often. So for penicillin allergics, severe donogenic infections, and this is, this is up to date, you know, material. So okay. for a severe penicillin allergy, that's reported clindamycin and, and levofloxacin for a non-severe penicillin allergy, ceftriaxone and metronidazole. So that that's another combination with flagell would be ceftriaxone, which mm-hmm. is a third generation cephalosporin. And then, you know, it gets into the, well, when do you know if you should use a cephalosporin with a penicillin allergic patient? I think there's actually a study being done even at Yale um, with a colleague that they're looking at every patient that comes in with a severe head and neck infection. They're doing it just kind of reflexive penicillin allergy testing. Because, pen, and I think you, you've talked about this on the podcast, penicillin allergy is 
hugely overreported. Yeah. At least in severity. And so if you have somebody that, okay, they had hives and they have a severe infection and you, and you know, unison would be the choice. Well, then maybe ceftriaxone and, and metronidazole is a good choice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you have to, you have to really question that patient and really understand that and be, and, and there's risk to that, but certainly if you're in the hospital, you know, it's, it's a better place to be than if, if an allergic reaction does happen. So yeah. I, I don't mean to come off as cavalier about the allergy, but if somebody, basically, if somebody reports to you, oh, I, well, I had true anaphylaxis. Okay. Well then you shouldn't even give them a cephalosporin. Right. Yeah. Important to ask and figure out what the reaction was severity all that stuff yeah so i think that's one change so clinda there's been a lot of changes with clinda so either in their in the prophylaxis you know world for us clinda's out for general treatment of mild infections i think clinda is questionable and then obviously for severe infections clinda would only be used plus something else like levofloxacin. Okay. And then, you know, for severe odontogenic infections, that's for the immunocompetent patient, but for the immunocompromised patient, it kind of, it, it just changes completely because, you, and the reason it changes is back to what we were saying before is you're covering bacteria that you don't need to cover in the immunocompetent patient. So if you look on up to date for, for immunocompromised patients, you're covering the the typical the the strep viridens, the peptostrep, the you know fusobacterium, all that. But you're also covering pseudomonas, and maybe you're trying to cover MRSA and things that are more opportunistic in that sense, not the normal coverage. So the recommendations for those patients would be zosin or imipenem, miropenem, and then or cefepime plus clinda or metronidazole or levofloxacin plus metronidazole. So a lot more combinations or the really, you know, the, the carbapenems, which are, you know, the big guns. Got it. Okay. So if you think about duration too, I think, you know, we were touching on that before for the typical odontogenic infection, you know, there's really, there's, there's studies out there that, you know, showed that there's really no difference between three days and seven days. And so that's for, that's for treating an infection. That's not even prophylactic, you know, post-op course. And that goes back to the principle of minimizing the duration of the antibiotic therapy as appropriate. So once they've had an infection that's documented, they have it really, we only need to treat for three days is what you're saying. Yeah. But I mean, that, you know, it depends on the nature of the infection, right? I mean, that might be a vestibular abscess or, you know, if you have a vestibular abscess and you take the tooth out and you put a drain in, let's say you probably need three days max. Mm -hmm. Or do you even need it at all? I mean, you know, clinical judgment has to play a role here, but I just, I think at least this topic is good to 
to get, you know, to make people think and not just reflexively give everyone seven or 10 days or whatever, because it, a lot of it is unnecessary. And, and in fact, that's what breeds resistance by keeping somebody on antibiotics for a long time when they don't need it, you're, you're breeding bacteria that can be resistant to that even more. So for example, if you do surgery on a patient for adonogenic soft tissue infections, continue IV therapy, for example, until there's evidence of clinical improvement, which usually is within three to five days following the initiation of the antibiotics and, and the drainage. And but again, you're using your judgment on that time frame. And then it's the same thing as when when do you do you know oral step down therapy? And what do you step them down to, right? So if you're on unison, you know, the the obviously you'd step them down to Augmentin. But, you know, what, how long do you keep them on it? And when do you step them down? That type of thing. So these are all, you know, things to think about. Yeah. The other thing about Clinda, I, I think, sorry, I feel like I'm jumping around here. But the other thing about Clinda that I think a lot of people underdose Clinda they underdose it in frequency and in dose. Okay. So, you know, for a, especially, you know, for a, a moderate infection or a severe infection, it really needs to be a high dose, you know, 600, 900, you know, that we're used to in the hospital, but outpatient, you know, at least 450. Again, it depends on the, on the severity, but if it's, if, if you're just giving somebody antibiotics and they don't really need it, then they don't need it. But if, if it truly is a moderate soft tissue spreading infection, then they should be on it Q6 and it should be a decent dose. Not, you know, I've seen patients who get put on clindamycin at 150 or 300, three times a day. And that's really not enough. Hey guys, real quick. KLS Martin is offering a summer sale special that includes 35% off instruments and to be an air special that includes two free hand pieces with the purchase of a console. This is an amazing offer and it's limited to one console promotion per customer and is only valid until July 31st, 2023. So the BNR Chiro Pro L allows for both implantology and surgical applications with up to 80,000 RPMs, which I love. I use it on the 80,000 RPM setting every time I'm doing thermolar extractions and have no issues with power or comfort or control. I just love how they feel in my hand when I'm using them, and I just um, can't say enough about this system. So please use the promo code capital EOSS, lowercase U-M-M-E-R, 2023 to take advantage of this offer. Enjoy. You So if someone came into your office and they had a pretty big infection, you drained them, are you putting them on like 600 U6 for three days, or like what is your typical treatment for that patient yes uh, yes something like that i mean now i'm i question clindamycin altogether but but yes at least 450 q6 in the outpatient setting i think right. if it's severe enough to be higher than that then maybe they should be getting iv anyway yeah but you know iv doses of clinda are 900 typically for the severe infections mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point to bring up because we it seems like we can fall into just the routine. Everyone gets 300 or a certain amount and you don't kind of really stop to think, well, maybe this patient should get a higher dose. Yeah. And I think 
you know, there's those special circumstances like MRSA, neck fash, things like that, which certainly change change the paradigm of everything we're talking about. But you know, we can yeah. talk about some of those things if you if you want to get into that osteo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell us a, maybe talk to us a little bit about your antibiotic therapy or kind of how how antibiotics work with that patient with osteomyelitis. Yeah, I mean osteo is unique there are things that i think are helpful laboratory wise as well when you're following these patients where we probably wouldn't otherwise get them you know esr crp to follow that patient and that helps dictate or can help dictate the length of treatment but basically you know with osteomyelitis we know that those patients are going to require, whether they require surgery or not, they're going to require longer term antibiotics. So trending those labs, there was, a, there was a study too, a few years ago, or maybe it was, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, but where there was this, and I haven't done this, but it's very interesting. And it seemed really, really kind of straightforward. This, this method of monitoring osteomyelitis, and it was this urine LP and HP concentrations and Apparently, it was a really, really great marker for disease activity. Um, but again, it's a, it's a urine analysis, but it was also very inexpensive, probably cheaper than drawing the labs. Um, so just just another thing for people to be aware of. Um, so, you know, that can be an outpatient urine test too. But anyway, so the length of time, I mean, I think it depends, but four to six weeks, you know, for run-of-the-mill osteomyelitis or even, even longer, depending on the situation. Um, and I think that's one where, you know, culture and sensitivity are really, really helpful and understanding how to do that as well, because, you know, culturing bone, you know, you can send the bone in a sterile cup and, and send that as a culture. Um, so okay. it's, it's, it's helpful to biopsy that obviously, and, and really, understand that what ost you know it always always important to biopsy when you suspect osteo because it could be cancer could be something else but also culturing the bone mm-hmm. and and that especially in you know something that we don't expect just empiric treatment on necessarily or if if it's something unique then that that's really really helpful yeah that's a good point any other special circumstances where you would you know, well, a certain regimen for antibiotics. Yeah. I mean, sialadenitis is, is interesting because, you know, it's commonly, you know, common oral pathogens, but one thing, for example, Iconella is pretty common and mm-hmm. clindamycin does not cover Iconella. Okay. So that would be another example of where clindamycin is not a good choice for a penallergic patient. You know, so, I mean, a lot, a lot of times we're, you know, amoxicillin augmentin for a lot of these things, you know, for back to osteo, unison is probably the be- the number one empiric as his for sialadenitis augmentin versus unison. So that's important. What would you use for sialadenitis in the penallergic? Outpatient versus inpatient would differ probably, but you know, what, what's nice about the Clinda Levo is that can be oral as well. So yeah. I, I might go that route. Or, you know, 
again, you might do a inpatient IV ceftriaxone flagell versus ceftin flagell. So let's see other other special ones, you know, neck fash is something that you know everyone really needs to be aware of and you know, you don't see it that often, but when you see it it's pretty obvious and there's a variety of types so to speak. There's the poly- polymicrobial which is more commonly from adenogenic. Then there's the streptococcal which could be different streps, you know, group A's for example. Clostridial, MRSA, Klebsiella. So these are all different kind of, you know, categories of neck fash. But I mean, those patients are sick and they need to be started immediately on, on you know, broad spectrum. Like what's recommended is carbapenem and vancomycin. So that's a pretty, pretty heavy hitter. I think, you know, the most common being trying to cover the polymicrobial plus plus MRSA for the bank. But those patients, I mean, most of those patients are immunocompromised. There's a decent mortality with those patients and, you know, things progress rapidly. So, okay. but those, those patients are going to be, you know, obviously, I think we, <laughs> we saw a patient in our office sent by, by a, a referral to take out a tooth. And we took one look and we're like, uh, this patient has neck fash. <laughs> so my. anyway, many debridements later, patient did okay. Yeah. Real quick question for your thirds or implants. When you have a patient who's, you know, got immunocompromised things going on, they're diabetic, you know, or they're on chemo medications and things like that. Do you have, I mean, are you kind of changing your antibiotic therapy for that patient or how do you treat, let's say the diabetic patient who comes in for a routine surgery? Yeah, I think I usually just prophylax and a short course when I wouldn't otherwise. Okay. I mean, you know, the other thing too, and I don't know if I said it specifically, but prophylaxis really is the most important time, meaning preoperative antibiotics is the most important. So if you're going to do it, and and that's kind of goes with with the idea of, well, if you're going to give antibiotics for something postoperatively, they should be getting it preoperatively. That's the most important time. So anyway, you know, if you can, if you think about it, you should be just be giving them to, you know, that before you start and then maybe a short course. But anyway, yes, to answer your question, if it's, if it's, you know, well-controlled diabetic, probably not, but you know, it's, it goes back to clinical judgment. If this is a big procedure versus, you know, any sort of immunocompromised, I mean, there's so many questions about all of the biologics out there now. And, you know, if somebody, you know, I, I, I feel like we see a fair amount of patients who have ulcerative colitis, you know, young patients who have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and they're on different you know, suppressant medications and, you know, you'd have to almost look up each one and see, is there really, are they really immunosuppressed? I mean, they are immunosuppressed, but immunosuppression isn't all the same for every drug, right? So are they, are they at higher risk for a surgical site infection from odontogenic bacteria? Maybe, you know, I'd have to, you'd have to really look at each one, but anyway, I, I, I typically do. I mean, because a lot of these cases are borderline anyway, you could make the argument to 
to give the routine third molar a, a preoperative dose anyway. Yeah. Okay. How do you how do you do the prophylaxis for those patients that are local? You know, I usually just I just give them the medication, you know, upon arrival. Yeah. And then, you know, they're not usually waiting 60 minutes or if you know ahead of time, you can prescribe it. But honestly, I usually just give it to them when they get to the office. I find that to be the easiest and best kind of compliance. Mm -hmm. And I think by the time you're, you know, you start and you're, if they get it right when they get there, some paperwork, vitals, all that, by the time you're actually making an incision, I mean, it's probably been close to 30 minutes. If if it's oral though, and they're, an allergic do you have something other than clinda you're giving in the office I mean, do you yeah have i mean is it azithromycin okay which is on which is on the guidelines now azithromycin but if it's if you wanted to give them an iv antibiotic and you didn't want to give them a cephalosporin i don't know what you would do in the office <laughs> i mean or at least i don't have anything else in the office got it but I, we used to, I mean, I don't know about you, but in residency, when we would do IV sedations and we would prophylax, we would just push an IV antibiotic as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember <laughs> with you, you're like, did you just push all that Clinda? That's right. I remember that. Too fast. But, <laughs> but really now I, I just, I give patients an, uh, an oral an oral with the tiny sip. Yeah. Okay. Even for your IV, you're just. Yeah. yeah I mean, if it's a tiny sip of water, I mean, with appropriate time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm not opposed to giving them ampicillin, but I guess now, my point is now with, with Clinda being out, I don't know what my options are. So in the office. Yeah. It's a good point though, to be aware of who needs why get them the antibiotics on time the other pet peeve of mine too is you know i'm sure you remember this and you know every time we would go to the or and it would be anesthesia would ask if we want antibiotics and if we did and they were not allergic they'd be getting ansef mm -hmm. well, it never made sense to me like why are we giving ansef to patients you know you wouldn't you would never give them keflex and you would never you're right. Yeah. So, and again, that goes back to your question, which is a basic but good one is like, why is it important to know all this stuff? Because I think in the hospital, we get kind of wrapped up in what everyone else does. And there's only, there's only a handful of prophylactic protocols for all surgeries. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are different ones for different you know, systems and, you know, GI versus neurosurgery versus cardiac. But overall, I mean, for like head and neck, it's ANSEF or Clinda, but ANSEF never really made sense. ANSEF makes sense if you're doing, you know, a skin incision. But uh, anyway, so for, for, for example, for my orthognathics, I asked for unison and then anesthesia is like, oh, I gotta go get it. <laughs> you know, but it's gotta be a cost thing, right? It's probably cheaper to do ANSEF. Right. But it just, to me, it goes back, you're right. And it's certainly that, but it's like, it goes back to the whole, like, well, why are we even doing it then? Right. If we're not so, going to give the appropriate ones, why are we, are we doing this? It's, right. You know. mm -hmm. 
So I don't know. Somehow I've just developed this kind of interest slash pet peeves that I see. In regards to prophylaxis, I mean, so what is your third molar regimen? Do you give everyone? I do not. Okay. I do not. And, but I know there's good data to support it, but there's also good data to support not doing it. And it becomes a little bit of just logistics. It's difficult if you're doing a fair amount of those back to back to back. Are you going to prescribe them all? Are you going, you know, what if they don't take them? What if they do? What if they took, drank it with too much water? I, I don't know. I mean, not that that's a good answer as to why not to do it, but, but then to be honest, anecdotally, it's kind of going back to the number needed to treat. Like I told you about that patient who had that horrible infection and do I wish I gave her prophylactic antibiotics? Yeah. Would that have changed it? I don't know. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And after that, I really, really thought hard about, well, maybe I should prophylax everyone. And I did a little bit and then I didn't. And, And honestly, I mean, I don't get that many infections and I'm not saying that in any boastful way. I just think that that's pretty standard. I think it's pretty low, but you get a few here and there and they're usually minor. And, you know, so I don't know. I talk to patients about it when they ask, but to your point earlier, if they have some sort of other, you know, immunocompromised state, then yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm typically doing that. Okay. Got it. I do prophylax for the implants, maybe for large bone grafts. I'm just talking about office-based stuff. Mm-hmm. Say that yeah. again. So you do implants. What about bone yeah. grafts? If you're doing an extraction with a site preservation? Typically not. No. But if it's, you know, if it's a larger graft, let's say maybe kind of a bigger GBR type of thing with, if there was a mesh, I probably, I would, I do. Yeah. Okay. But I think, honestly, I think re-rinsing with Paradex goes a long way. And that's just a total anecdotal thing. But yeah, why not? That was my other question. Are there any other kind of local measures you use, antibiotic type measures for certain procedures? Or- uh, no. Uh, one of my partners, I think he puts, he takes capsules of clindamycin and empties them and puts them in the sockets of the third molars. But no, I don't do anything else other than every patient, no matter what it is, they just get a pre-rinse with Paradex and then Paroxyl. Yeah. Okay. And their mouth is very clean and s- smells better. No. Yes. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit to some of the other indications for prophylaxis, you know, such as, whatever knee hip replacements things that kind of years ago or i'm not sure what what's being taught now but years ago we were kind of taught to prophylax these people yeah i mean the guidelines now are it's not even really recommended at all but you know at least since i was a dental student it was you prophylax forever you're talking about patients with with total joint replacements yeah. doing dental, you know, invasive procedures. Okay. So it used to be you prophylax them for life. Then it was, you prophylax them for two years after their replacement. And now it's just, you don't even really need to, it's up to the, the judgment of the provider. So to answer your question, what do I do? I prophylax them if they say that they're 
orthopedic surgeon wants them to. Yeah. But if, if they're indifferent or don't know, then I don't typically. Now there, there is that question of, I, I had a patient recently who they asked me, well, I just, I had a hip replacement or a knee replacement, whatever it was, you know, four, four weeks ago. Should we, should, and it wasn't an urgent extraction. Should we do this? You know, it was, it was a consult, let's say, and should we do this soon or should we wait? Should we wait another month? And I don't know what the right answer is to that, but I told them, I think if, if it's not urgent, let's wait a little while because I don't know, with a fresh, a fresh joint replacement, it, it did make me a little nervous, but if you do, it's kind of the same thing of just thinking about, a, well, it's, it's an analogy to, okay, if a patient just had an MI, you wait at least six weeks before doing a procedure you know, it just, it just, it has nothing to do with that, but it was just the sense of giving it a little bit of time for healing made me nervous, but there's no guideline on that, that I'm aware of. Okay. How about for artificial heart valves? Yeah. I mean that for, for sure. I would just follow the, the guidelines, which is, you know, for infective endocarditis. So prosthetic heart valve, or a valve repair with prosthetic material. I think actually that's, uh, there's one update, at least to me, I think it's relatively new that, so that that's been there a while. The other, the thing that I think was added recently was durable mechanical circulatory support device. So like a VATS or a ventricular assist device. So if, if a patient has that, they should be prophylaxed, which I don't think that used to be in the guideline too recently. Okay. But yeah, and then, other things like previous or recurrent infective endocarditis or, you know, and then certain types of congenital heart disease and then cardiac transplant patients. So. Yep. Okay. And then as far as antibiotic stewardship and all the, there's, I've, I've recently, I've been listening to a lot of audible health books and there's just so many doctors who are writing health books and quoting studies about how you know dangerous antibiotics are and they wipe out the microbiome and they you know can result in all number of various numbers of illnesses and horrible things that can happen what uh, what are your thoughts on on that stuff yeah i mean i i like to make the analogy of antibiotic resistance is the climate change of medicine because if we if we lose just basic sensitivities to basic antibiotics i mean we'd really be in trouble you know just routine strep throat for example so there's this interesting it's in one of our oms textbooks where there was there was some different studies. So for example, there was a study after a one week course of penicillin for strep throat, they found an increased carriage of penicillin resistant organisms in the siblings and the parents of those patients. Wow. And that antibiotic resistance level did not decrease to the baseline for until three months after that. Hmm. And also there, they found there was this monthly variation in the penicillin resistant organisms among, among school children in the public school system. So following a trough in like September, the organisms, the resistant organisms increased until March, and then they started to decline. 
And that was seen like two consecutive years. So it just shows you that, you know, this, this is a fluid dynamic thing that's happening all the time in, in and around us. So all it takes is just a, a push into one bad direction, you know, and, and I think that's where the stewardship comes in. Mm-hmm. But basically, you know, the, the idea for, for students out there or whatever is just by administering a course of antibiotics, we're selecting for the survival of the antibiotic resistant organisms, not only in our patients. See, this is important, not only in our patients, but also their families and the, and the communities because hmm. we're spreading those around. So the people you live with are going to be exposed to those bacteria. And now we've just selected for more virulent resistant organisms. That's interesting. And then you could get into the whole animal agriculture thing, not to get political. That shouldn't really be political, but antibiotics in our food, Mm -hmm. not good either. No bueno. So that's my soapbox. (laughs) Yeah. Antibiotic scarring, how, you know, I mean, it, it seems like most studies say it takes about six months after you've had a course of broad spectrum antibiotics to rebuild your microbiome. But I've even heard doctors say two years to yeah. get back to where you were. Yeah. In your, in your GI tract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it makes you not want to take them ever. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of studies I think out there now about, you know, it'd be interesting to say, okay, well, if if I'm going to prescribe you these antibiotics, should you eat Greek yogurt, eat kimchi? Does that matter? Does that do anything? Is that helping support the biome during the course of antibiotics? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, logically it makes sense, but does it really clinically matter or make a difference? Yeah. I'm not sure, but to me, it makes sense to be doing something to, or taking some type of supplement you know that can help rebuild your microbiome Mm -hmm. a healthy microbiome quicker after you've taken them yeah Uh, just yeah i'm just going to add one thing going back to the antibiotics that we were talking about because i I forgot to mention this but out of the 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 different types that you can reach for when you need either broader spectrum or something something different moxifloxacin is is a is a good one. That's a fourth generation fluoroquinolone because it has the best anaerobic coverage. A lot of the prior generations don't. So if you know you have the usual players that we've been talking about, and then some of the combination ones that we talked about, like Clinda Levo or Seftin Flagyl, or Seftin actually Seftin even on its own, or Penicillin Flagyl, but Moxifloxacin is a decent one too for the right patient. But then, you know, there's, so another thing for, you know, students, residents, not familiar with prescribing these as much, there are certainly limitations and and patient populations that are not good candidates for certain antibiotics, such as fluoroquinolones. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of drug reactions with fluoroquinolones. They're not good. I think it's pregnancy category C. They're not to be used in pediatric patients. So there's a lot of limitations there, but just something to know or have in your back pocket, I think is Moxie. Does Moxie have the same issue as levofloxacin with 
pediatric patients having the Achilles tendon rupture? I think that's present for the whole class of fluoroquinolones, yeah. to my to my understanding. Okay, that's what I thought as well. This is a crazy story. I and I don't I almost don't believe this, but I saw a patient recently who I know you like stories. Love them. Uh, <laughs> he I think it was just to take a tooth out and he had this very extensive medical history and he was relatively young. And you're going through this medical history and I'm like, "Wait, you've had an aortic dissection and aortic uh, you know, stenting and I think there was a valve repair. I mean, it was like major stuff and he was relatively young and, you know, just a, a pearl to students and residents. Anytime you see anything that's out of the ordinary, question the patients and you're going to learn something. So anyway, I was inquiring with him about his history and why and when and all those things. And, and he said, this was due to him taking a few courses of fluoroquinolones. Wow. And he seemed to be very educated about it. And he said that, I guess, you know, as you mentioned, we learn for some reason, we learn about the Achilles tendon with fluoroquinolones, but he said, you know, it's, it can be in the right patient or the wrong patient. It can be, you know, detrimental to all connective tissues or certain types of connective tissues throughout the body. And it basically, he almost died with this aortic dissection. And he said he, he tore, I think, tendons in, in his knees and ankles. I mean, just this crazy story. And so anyway, it was, it was kind of eye-opening that makes you not want to prescribe them, but you know, and, and that wasn't an adult. Yeah. Wow. Real quick, where do you go to, I mean, what's, what's a good reference that you use to, for, for your antibiotic stuff? Is it up to date? Are you looking on PubMed? Like, where do you go to yeah. really quickly? I check? like up to date. I like up to date for the broad, overview things you know like they, they have a good section for severe odontogenic infections so i would say that would be number one and also honestly i mean using the using the app apocrates is quite helpful for for dosing and for adverse reactions and for you know contraindications and things like that okay good to know yeah well good that's a good discussion i think on antibiotics and the importance of you know being aware i think like like we've talked about with uh, another one of our guests with this topic a lot of this topic i feel like is taking it seriously and communicating with the patient you know really taking the time to figure out their history what their health issues past issues with antibiotics and not just skimming over it and kind of just throwing antibiotics at them like they're somebody on a conveyor belt, you know? Yeah, I think, I think, for example, when a patient tells you they have a penicillin allergy, it's really good to question them on what that is or isn't. For example, because you learn, I think like your other guest was talking about with that issue is that I mean, not everyone is going to take the risk and some people are just not going to prescribe a penicillin or a cephalosporin, but in the right patient, it makes a difference. I, I can't remember if I told you this story, but I had a patient who had osteo with a penicillin allergy and Augmentin was the choice. This was for outpatient management. 
And we had a long conversation. The patient was very, you know, you also have to trust the patient or not trust the patient. The patient was very adamant, like, no, I've had, it's in my chart, but I had a mild rash and it wasn't a big deal. And it was like on the seventh day, but I don't want to be cavalier about it because I, I'm sure allergies can change over time. Mm-hmm. But I said to him, I said, unison's the ch- or augmentin's the choice here empirically. Let's try this if you're comfortable. And he was comfortable. You know, you document that. And anyway, it worked out. He had no reaction and he never required surgery. So that situation worked out. But I don't know. It, it I know it's hard to convince people to take a risk, but I think it has to be a calculated risk. And one, like to your point, an educated risk because you've talked to that patient. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me back. Yes. Any any uh, new quotes you've heard or things that you want to share with us that have nothing to do with antibiotics? Anything I want to share? <laughs> No, I think, I I just think it's important that we never get complacent, you know, with what you've learned True, because, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about tonight, I've reviewed, I've, you know, touched up over the years since residency and all that sort of thing. So I think I just want to impart on the students that it's a never ending journey. We're lifelong learners. That's how we should be. That's right. And, you know, yeah, this is another topic we've talked about, but it's easy to fall into the whole idea that, you know, you learned everything that you need to learn in residency. And I think it's just probably easier to learn in residency because you're of that mindset and you're at a learning institution. Harder to learn once you've graduated a lot just because of your mindset. It's like, well, you know, I've, I've learned everything I need to, or now I'm a doctor and I'm maybe not around people who are teaching me much. And so I think it's important to keep learning, even though you've graduated and shoot, yeah. even if you're 30, 40 years out. Well, I mean, cause, and, and for nothing else, things change like this antibiotic thing. I mean, that has changed. Yeah. And I think it's strange. I mean, tell me what your take on this, but the whole Clinda being removed from guidelines I don't recall that being made a big deal by the, I don't know, the ADA or, I mean, maybe it was brought up in dental schools. I don't know. I'm not sure either. I don't remember it being a big deal either. That's my point. It's like, if that wasn't made a big deal in our ADA or your, your state society, I just, I don't feel like I would have missed that. No, and in fact, I mean, I worked with a lot. I I currently work with a lot of young dentists, and I mean, a lot of them will text me and say, "Oh, hey, you know, I'm, I have a patient I'm sending over. Uh, they have a penicillin allergy, so I gave them clindamycin." Like that's like a weekly text, you know. I, I don't feel like any of my young dentists are have changed any, you know, anything about clinda. They're also given it, so. Yeah. And I mean, I guess just to, to make the point that Clinda's out for prophylaxis, but mm-hmm. is it still decent for empiric outpatient mild infection treatment? I think it's probably okay still. Or I, I mean, look, I don't know on the given circumstance. I mean, 
one patient that's probably fine and another patient there's yeah. resistance. But like we talked about, there can be resistance pretty decently to amoxicillin. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying I don't use Clinda, but I, at least from a dental prophylaxis guideline standpoint, it's out. And for the severe infection that's in the hospital, it's out as a single IV therapy. Okay. So the, those are the things where I would stick to those quote unquote guidelines. Uh-huh. But I'm not, not to say I wouldn't use it tomorrow in an outpatient setting and follow a patient closely, you know? Yeah. And I see a lot of prescribing docs just giving antibiotics, including Clinda, just for pain, you know, like a, right a pa- you know oh patients in pain tons of pain well they swollen no but i mean they're in pain and so i give antibiotics and pain pills and you know they'll see you next week or something and it's like well, yeah that's a huge pet peeve of mine <laughs> i don't know the word has to get out there and I, I think a lot of people know not they know that that's unnecessary but they do it because they either they don't want to be bothered again until that patient's taken care of or they or they feel like, well, what if it's going to turn into an infection? I mean, yeah. but again, that still doesn't make it right. I agree. That's why we got to be edumacated, Dave. Just you and me against the world. <laughs> Changing the world one podcast at a time. Yeah. I mean, this, this one's going to really go viral. This I can just tell. I can feel it. It's going to blow up. Yeah, I agree. You and I are going to be on on all the network television. Jimmy Fallon, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, my bro, thank you so much. <laughs> let's uh, let's do another one soon. Yeah, running out of topics. <laughs> There's always stuff to learn, Dave. I can always pull another topic out my butt. That's for sure. How many chains, links of the chain, do you use on the Expose and Bond? Uh... <laughs> you know dave i prefer three and a half and i bend that half one closed to a smaller circle <laughs> no i'm just kidding it's been shown yeah no there will be more there will be more topics we can do one on should you be putting safety glasses on your patients during sedations <laughs> dave? Know, what kind of wild uh, sedations are you having <laughs> yeah that's yeah, we could get into the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. Might as well. Well, do you have any? You have any good ones lined up after me? You can tell me the truth. <laughs> I mean, you're the best, of course. But right. we do have some medicine topics coming up. I mean, you got like a whole online curriculum. Somebody could just do your residency. Yeah, <laughs> might as well. I'm ex- I'm actually excited for what I'm doing with my good buddy that practices in this group with me here. We're doing one on actually using dental loops and other auxiliary equipment to improve your posture, vision, the way you do things. I know most surgeons don't use loops, but you know what, Dave? When you when you're old like me and you're past your 40s you can't see anything i mean you're just like pretty much blind so well maybe you should get a da vinci robot (laughs) true stay home and do surgery but 
Anyways, just getting the wheels turning in your head, Dave. Keep thinking. Keep thinking of topics for me. Yeah. No, I'll I'll get back to you. Okay. With a whole list. Sounds good. All right. Well, you stay safe out there. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.